All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. In this session, we're going to begin the final major section of the letter. We said 1 Thessalonians is broken into two big chunks. The first chunk, chapters 1 through 3, which we just wrapped up in our last session, is really all about Paul's relationship to the Thessalonians. Here in this session, we begin the second major chunk, chapters 4 and 5, which is really all about Paul's instructions to the Thessalonians. Here we begin what is often called the ethical section of the letter. Paul can't be with them. He longs to establish them in their faith some more and to shore up maybe some things that are deficient. He knows the natural temptations. He's been doing ministry long enough to know where people are going to struggle. And so he wants to bolster their faith. And so here in chapters 4 and 5, Paul at least provides some instruction to them on, here's some key things that are very pertinent to your situation, to your needs, as you try to live out the Christian life there in Thessalonica. And so we begin that ethical section of the letter, Paul's instructions to the Thessalonians on how they ought to live their Christian life. And in this session, we're going to specifically look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. And it is one of the most important passages on sexual ethics anywhere in the New Testament. It's one of the most important passages, not just for the Thessalonians, for us about sexual purity and how we are supposed to live as God's people in a world where sexuality is misused and twisted and corrupted widely and freely. Because frankly, that was the issue for the Thessalonians, just like it's an issue for us today. Sexual promiscuity was rampant in Greco-Roman society, and that showed up in a variety of different ways. Sexual unfaithfulness in marriage was common, almost expected. In fact, one well-known saying from a writer of the time said, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our daily needs, and wives to bear us legitimate offspring. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean everybody thought that way, but that was sort of the, that was sort of the mood of the day. That was sort of the feel of the times. And sexual faithfulness within marriage is not the norm. And it was actually, in some circles, even viewed as odd or strange that you would limit it to that. And so Paul, as a writer, now writing to new believers, has to help them continue to learn a new culture, a new way of life that is based on Jesus and God and the way God created humans to operate. And so we enter into this first little bit of the ethical instructions in the letter with all of that in mind. And here's what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. He begins with a general introduction in verses 1 and 2, how he's shifting to more of this ethical instruction section of the letter. He says this, finally then, brothers and sisters, and so this is his transition, his shift, literally finally is, now as to the rest, in other words, we're moving to a new topic, a new section. And so finally then, brothers and sisters, we request and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel even more. And so he is shifting to this ethical instruction. 
And he says, we, we are urging you, we're requesting you, we're exhorting you that you excel even more in how you walk and please God. We request and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Notice that, that Paul says, what I'm about to write is in the Lord Jesus. It's under the Lord Jesus. He's actually going to go on and emphasize that here a little bit more. That as you received instruction from us, when we were there, when we taught you and we were there in person, so you received that instruction from us orally and verbally when we were there about how you ought to walk. And walking is the dominant metaphor for going about life. And it just makes sense. That's how you got anywhere in the ancient world, right? They didn't have cars. How did you get from your house to the market, from the market to the gymnasium, from the gymnasium to the theater? You walk. And so walking became the dominant picture for going about life. So how you ought to walk is how you ought to carry out your life. And you ought to do that and please God. So the way you ought to walk ought to be pleasing to God. That's what we're after in the ethical instructions here is we want to help you figure out how to please God, just as you actually do walk. So you're walking that way, he says, but we want you to excel even more. We want you to get better at this, go further with this. And so he affirms them, you've made progress in this regard, but you haven't arrived where you need to be yet. And so keep walking in this direction, keep excelling still more. Verse 2, he says, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so when Paul was there and he was teaching and preaching and helping them understand the way of Jesus, those are the instructions he gave. Notice how he gave them, by the Lord Jesus, by his authority, as his representative. And so Paul knew that he was teaching the message of Jesus. He was teaching with the authority of Jesus because he's his apostle. And so he teaches with as a, a full authoritative representative of Jesus. And so we gave you those instructions, and we want you to walk that way. Now, at that point, that's the general introduction. And what, what shows up then in the rest of this section, chapters 4 and 5, falls under that heading as more instructions about how you ought to walk and please God by the authority of Jesus. That's what he's going to give. And the first major topic he's going to take up is this topic of sexual holiness, sexual purity, that we were talking about in the introduction to this section. So verses 3 through 8 all revolve around that specific topic of sexual purity. So he says in verse 3, For this is the will of God. If you've ever wondered what God's will is, here is something you don't have to wonder about, right? There are a number of statements like this in the New Testament. Here's God's will. Here's what God wants. Um, and oftentimes we make God's will this mystical, more complicated thing than I think it really needs to be. Here's something that's very concrete and clear. We don't have to wonder. Here's what God wants. Your sanctification. That word sanctification, big Bible word, big theological word, but it really just refers to the process of becoming holy. It's actually from the same root as the word holy. And the basic idea of holy is set apart for. And so holiness could be set apart for God's purposes. And holiness then could also refer to specific ways of living, behavior. Holy behavior was holy, uh, was behavior that was in keeping with God's standards, with God's character. And so this is what God wants. God wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to become holy. 
where your life is set apart for his purposes and reflects his character. That's sanctification. That's what God wants. And specifically, what Paul has in mind, an area where sanctification is desperately needed, he says, is in the realm of sexuality. He says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. The word translated sexual immorality is a big, broad word in Greek, pornaya. It's actually the word we get our English word pornography from. You can hear it in there. Uh, pornaya just referred to any illicit sexual activity. A big, broad word. Any sexual activity that's outside God's intent and God's purpose for sexual behavior, sexual activity. And so you're supposed to abstain from that. And so abstain from any misuse of sexual behavior and sexuality. And so abstain from that. And that word abstain in Greek literally is put distance between yourself and. It's hold away from, keep away from. So you got to keep away from sexual immorality. You don't get close to it. You don't flirt with it, right? You don't uh, draw near to it and hope you can resist it. You put distance between yourself and sexual immorality. That's the idea. So God wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be sanctified specifically in the area of your sexual behavior. He wants you to avoid and put distance between yourself and pornaya, sexual immorality, any illicit sexual activity. Paul goes on and describes more fully what he has in mind in verses 4 and 5. He says that, here's what, I, here's what I'm thinking, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't know God. A number of things we need to clarify in that clause. Notice what he says, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel. The particular word he uses for know here has this idea of learn, right? Like we need to learn how to possess our own vessel. We need to come to know is the idea of know there. That, um, so we need to learn how to do this. And specifically, we need to learn how to possess his own vessel, he says. Well, what does he mean by that? Possesses this idea of uh, acquire, gain, possess, live in. His own vessel. What does he mean by vessel? Vessel. Well, there's actually some debate and some confusion about that, although uh, it seems like largely the majority of people understand vessel in one particular way. Here's the, the two options most frequently given. One is vessel in the sense of his own wife, since he seems to be writing to males. There is a few scholars who say vessel should be like your wife, as in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where it talks about a wife as the weaker vessel. Uh, I just think that's a real misunderstanding, both of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7, and this passage here. When it says wife is the weaker vessel, he's not talking about her as a possession of her husband. He's talking there in 1 uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 7, as her person, physically, she's just not, more often than not, as physically strong as a male. Not only that, don't want to get all into First Thessalonians or First Peter chapter three. We'll deal with that in the commentary on that in a little bit. But more than that, what he's really getting at is uh, something that's dignifiable for her. He actually says she is a person of honor because of this, and so there's something about that there that is honorable. We'll deal with that in that commentary. I just don't think that's at all what Paul's talking about here. So the better option with vessel here 
is body. That's common with the way this word is used. Jars of clay in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, which is literally earthen vessels. Earthen vessels. It's talking about us physically, right? And that just is the more consistent usage for this word vessel in the Bible as well as outside of the Bible. And so what he's talking about is physically your own body, but body, specifically in this context, sexually speaking. In fact, some scholars even suggest there's some evidence to say the usage in this kind of context is as specific as a person's own sex organs. And his point then is that each of us learn how to possess our body, sexually speaking, he says, in sanctification, holiness, right? Like in a way that's set apart for God and is holy before God. So we learn how to possess our own body, sexually speaking, in a holy sort of way and in honor, in an honorable sort of way. And so so there's this is if we're going to be sanctified with regard to our sexuality, this is something we need to know how to do. We need to learn how to do. We need to learn how to possess, to live within our own body in a way that's holy and honorable. And he goes on to say in verse 5 that as we learn how to do that, we'll not live in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Two words there, lustful passion, two words for strong, overwhelming desire. And so he's put those two words together to emphasize that as we are uh, sanctified sexually, as we learn how to possess our own body sexually speaking in a way that's holy and honorable, we will not be consumed with sexual desire. We're not going to be overwhelmed with sexual desire so that we operate constantly in this perpetual state of sexual arousal, sexual stew, where we're always driven by sexuality, that our, our sexual desire is under control. It's not out of control. So not in lustful passion, not in passion of desire, literally, right? Like not in this overwhelming, out-of-control state of desire like the Gentiles who don't know God. Gentiles being non-Jews, right? Those who uh, have no knowledge of God and uh, of God's word and God's truth and how God designed sexuality to happen. We're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be set apart from that, other than that. That's the idea of sanctification. And notice that the problem is that they don't know God. And so, uh, Sexual holiness is a reflection of our knowledge of who God is, right? Like knowing God leads to sexual purity and sexual holiness. This necessarily goes together. And so uh, our sexual practice and our sexual behavior as God's people uh, ought to reflect the faithfulness and the purity of God's very own character. We've come to know God. And then Paul goes on in verse 6 to point out how uh, sexual unfaithfulness actually has social ramifications. It affects other people. It's not just a personal private affair that there is social and interpersonal implications of both sexual faithfulness and sexual unfaithfulness. He says in verse 6, and that no one violate the rights and take advantage of his brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. That phrase, no one violates the rights of, is 
better just translated transgress. It's to go against. It's to commit a wrong against somebody. This idea of violate the rights could be easily misconstrued here. It doesn't even reflect the Greek super well. And so this is the most recent update of the New American Standard. The older Amer New American Standard, I think, is actually better than this one. And so to violate the rights is to commit a wrong against um, and take advantage of, defraud, take advantage of his brother or sister in this matter. What he's getting at is that if you are unfaithful to your spouse or you're unfaithful to somebody else in the community, right? Like this is doing a wrong against somebody and it's defrauding them. It's dishonoring them. It's taking advantage of them. We're supposed to learn how to possess our own vessel in honor. This is not honorable behavior. This is shameful behavior. It's wrong behavior. It's harmful behavior to the community. And we know this. We know this, that, that um, sexual unfaithfulness, um, even if the relationship in, say, a marriage uh, prevails after that, it takes years to rebuild trust and security and intimacy that is violated by that behavior, correct? That's what Paul is getting at. And the ripple effect of that isn't just for the immediate couple. Humans are such a, a social being and the social uh, networking is so massive that the, the fallout becomes widespread and damaging. You can see this even in, say, for the example, the life of David in the Old Testament. When he committed his sin with Bathsheba, his kingly reign was never the same again. His uh, family, I mean, that's what leads to Absalom rebelling. and right. I mean, it, the, the breakdown of the social fabric within the community, his extended family, derived from his sexual unfaithfulness. That's Paul's point, is that we need to learn sexual holiness so that we don't dishonor and wound and wrong and defraud our brothers and sisters in, in this matter of sexuality. And then he gives us a warning. Why? Well, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. God takes this seriously. This is not a flippant, no big deal sort of thing. God is the avenger in all these things, just as Paul says, we told you previously and solemnly warned you. This is a big deal because uh, sexual looseness and sexual promiscuity was so widespread in their culture. Paul told them right up front as he's initially teaching them the gospel, grounding them in the faith, helping them learn the way of Jesus. Here's an area where you have to be different. Here's an area where uh, what God expects of you goes completely against the norms of culture. And God's going to hold you accountable to that. And God's the avenger in all these things. And so he was warning them that as part of his initial grounding in the gospel, that when we when we transfer our allegiance from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God, and we enter into the kingdom of God, that there is a new culture we have to learn. And we can't just go with the culture of the world. And so Paul emphasized that right from the get-go in his teaching and preaching to these people, particularly in this area that's so, so important. So he says, as he wraps us up in verse 7 and 8, For God has not called us for impurity, but in sanctification. Um, we warned you about this. Uh, God's the avenger in this area. Why? Because God's called us to purity. God's called us to live clean, holy, pure lives. He's not called us for impurity, 
but he's called us in sanctification. Part of coming into the kingdom of God is to learn the values and the culture of the kingdom of God, and those cultures call for purity and holiness with regard to our sexuality. Therefore, verse 8, the one who rejects this is not rejecting man. You're not just rejecting a mere human teaching. You're not just rejecting my idea, right? This is not just a man's made-up idea. It's not just a human teaching. You're rejecting God. If you reject sexual holiness and sexual purity, you're rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Notice that, that God is the one who gives his Holy Spirit. In fact, the word gives is present tense here, seeming to emphasize the continuing activity of the Spirit among us, that God is the one who continually gives us his Spirit for the benefit of helping us live holy lives. He is the Holy Spirit, after all, and his major function in us individually and in us corporately as God's people is to help us be holy. That's his primary job, is to produce in us the very character of God, and God is pure, and God is faithful, and God is holy. And so the Spirit is going to help us live holy lives as well. Now, that's some straightforward and strong teaching on sexual purity and sexual holiness. And uh, I believe this is one of the most important texts for us to just pray through and meditate on and process, especially if sexual purity is something that we struggle with prior to coming to Christ, if we've struggled with since we have become a follower of Christ. We need to pray through and process, memorize, meditate on this particular passage. One of the things I love, particularly about verses 3 through 5, is it really gives us all three parts of our strategy for becoming sexually holy. Um, abstain from sexual immorality. In other words, put distance between yourself and that. In other words, you don't get close to sexual temptation and then hope you can defeat it. You you do what's necessary to put distance between yourself and sexual immorality. Abstain from it. This is consistent in Paul's teaching, right? Like flee youthful lusts. You don't, it's just, this isn't an area that we we play around with, we try to see how close we can get to the line of sin without crossing it. No, we try to get as far away as we can. This is distance. Abstain from sexual immorality. And then that each of you learn how to possess his own vessel in holiness and honor. And so we're not just trying to avoid the bad. We're, we're trying to become uh, the good. We're trying to learn how to possess our own bodies, sexually speaking, in, in a holy way, in an honorable way. Pursuing a positive, pursuing holiness, sexual holiness, is greater than just avoiding sexual impurity. And so we put distance between ourselves and sexual temptation, but that's not enough. The ultimate goal is to become pure and holy on the inside with regard to our sexuality so that we're not consumed by lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't know God. Uh, and so the ultimate goal is for our, our sexual desire to be uh, trained by the Holy Spirit so that our sexual desire is is right and pure and holy, that our sexual desire is held within us in the way it was always designed so that it's not out of whack and out of control like the pagans who don't know God, uh, like the world around us. And so this is just such a powerful text as we think through, ah, oh, that's what I'm all about. That's what I'm after. The other thing that's great about this text is how it's, it's rooted in God in God's will, in the knowledge of God, in the God who calls us to these things, in the God who lives among us in the person of his Holy Spirit, right? Like we are 
conforming our life around the person and character and knowledge of God as we seek to be uh, holy in a sexual way. And so this text is just central to learning the way of Christ with regard to our sexuality. And so I, I hope and pray that you'll take this text to heart. You'll pray through it. You'll memorize it. You'll meditate on it. You'll pray it into your heart and soul. You'll uh, quote it to yourself in the morning. You'll quote it to yourself in the evening. Uh, when you're being uh, confronted with sexual temptation, you'll immediately go to this text and you'll quote it to yourself so that it'll help you become the holy kind of person that God has called you to be.